Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get, well, access. Access to not only our great daily newsletter, but all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This week on Seneca, I am delighted to welcome back to the show Yuan Yuan Ang, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan. Yuan Yuan is the inaugural recipient of the Theta Scotchpole Prize for Emerging Scholars, which is awarded by the American Political Science Association for impactful, empirical, theoretical, and or methodological contributions to the study of comparative politics. She is the author of How China Escaped the Poverty Trap, and China's Gilded Age, a book that we talked about the last time she was on the show and about which she was interviewed on the fantastic Freakonomics podcast to boot. She has an essay out recently in the Journal of Democracy called How Resilient is the CCP? And it's that essay, among other things, that we will be talking about today. Yuan Yuan, welcome back to Seneca. Great to see you. It is great to be back. Thank you so much for having me, Kaiser. My pleasure, entirely my pleasure. Yuan Yuan, your essay for the Journal of Democracy fits, I think, in, into a growing literature that seeks to, to refine our understanding of authoritarian governance. Um, some months back, I talked to a scholar named Manfred Elfstrom about his book on labor unrest in China, which is very much part of that literature. And we talked about how the, the whole discourse on authoritarian governance has moved from transitology to a discussion of authoritarian resilience. Mm -hmm. And like you, I suspect, he, he saw perhaps too much of a stark binary between, on the one hand, people who were you know sure that China's authoritarian system was so brittle that it was bound to collapse or to transition to democracy. And on the other hand, there were the sort of resilience people who were absolutely sure that it would endure Am I right in thinking that you would also, like Manfred, kind of place yourself somewhere between? I mean, you certainly don't argue that Xi Jinping is, you know, all-powerful and has it all completely under control. Yeah, I, you know, none of us can predict for sure whether the CCP will persist or at some point reform or possibly even disintegrate. But I think what, what's useful in terms of understanding China is to know what are the sources of fragility and resilience. And as for the outcome, that is ultimately going to be influenced by some, actually not some, but a strong element of accident and luck as well. Yeah. But what we can do right now is to say, well, we know that in the current situation under Xi's leadership, these are the areas in which he is fragile. And these are the areas in which he's in control. And so that's how I think about it. Yeah, no, that's a very good way to think about it. I mean, because there are areas where I think it does exhibit quite a bit of strength and stability, and then other areas where I, I think that, yeah, there's, there's obvious sources of sort of brittleness. Um, 
What do you make of the state of our understanding in the field more generally? Here I'm talking not just about academic political scientists, but also, you know, about analysts and think tanks or in government agencies and even in journalism. What, what do you make of the state of our understanding about China's governance? I mean, are there some enduring beliefs that you commonly see that in your estimation just just have it completely wrong? And and from where you sit, does it seem to you that we're moving closer to or further away from maybe a more accurate and a more nuanced read on the Chinese political system, its, its durability and its fragility? Mm, that's a great question. And I think it's really hard to generalize across mm-hmm. the entire community of, of sure, China sure. watches. I think that that would be almost impossible. But one of the things we do notice about the way commentators talk about China is this binary that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. which is either China is the world's superpower and it's bent on taking over the US, or, you know, China is on a sharp decline and it's about to collapse soon. Right. Right. And so I think that for the average person in the American public, or even for someone who knows China quite well, this is extremely confusing and contradictory because one of them has to be correct, right? (laughs) And I think that what is missing in much of our discourse and analysis today is a balanced picture that tells us the parts of the Chinese political system and economy that is in deep trouble, but the other parts of the system that allows it to weather these crises so that we have a balanced picture and we are able to make sense and reconcile these extreme opinions. But I think in the world that we live in today, with social media and with everyone having severe attention deficit because we have so much news and, and tweets out there, is that you have to take a very extreme position oh, yeah. and, and be very loud about it in order to get attention, right? So things that I do, that's so boring, right? It's so boring. It's like, let me give you a balanced perspective of China and tell you about <laughs> its strengths and weakness. And, 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 and to, uh, I, I know that it's almost futile to do that, but I do think that there are some thoughtful readers and listeners and observers out there who do not want to be part of the polarized discourse. And so so I continue to do what I do, which is that we need to have a balanced understanding of China, both its good and bad, negative, positive, its strength, as well as its weaknesses. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I, I can't stand the way that, that social media rewards kind of stridency, extremism, and, and, and you know, snarkiness, right? But, uh, you know, all those scholars, hopefully, will get them all on Seneca. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I just saw this uh, uh, tweet that someone made about uh, there's this template that you can create to make your YouTube vi- video get uh, millions of hits, and you just need to have fire in the background <laughs> and some, some title. Uh, screaming that China is going to collapse and then like a picture of Xi Jinping and then you can put like, you know, glaring eyes in his face. And then and, and that's the template for getting a lot of Absolutely. attention. Absolutely, yeah. I know some YouTubers yeah. who, who use that template every goddamn day. <laughs> anyway, uh, Yuan Yuan, on the big question, the, the question, you know, that's quite central to your essay, whether China in the post-Mao period did or did not really institutionalize. Again, you seem to come down sort of, you know, somewhere in between in the sensible middle. If there is a 
conventional wisdom, though, at this point, it seems to be that she came to power in 2012 and within a few years became, you know, chairman of everything. I think that, that phrase goes to Jeremy Barmay. And, and especially after he changed the party constitution to not only upend the, the succession norm, but also, you know, managed to write Xi Jinping thought for the new era, whatever, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. into the constitution uh, and had himself named a core. So the conventional wisdom is that institutionalism is, is gone. It's no more. But you argue something different. Could you lay out for us, take your time and just lay, lay out for us the key argument that you make about institutionalization? Sure. Why not I start with explaining the concept itself and the history of the idea? Great. I know it's a mouthful. So the idea of institutionalization was introduced by Professor Andrew Nathan at Columbia. And in 2003, he wrote uh, what is now a classic piece, and it's titled Authoritarian Resilience. And in 2003, if you recall, that was the changing of God from the Jiang leadership to the Hu Jintao leadership. Mm -hmm. So at the time, China was not a threat. And the assumption in the West is that as China grows richer, it will eventually democratize. So the contribution of Nathan at that point was to say, well, that's not true. That assumption may not be true. And the reason for that, he says, it's this thing called institutionalization. It's an academic word. Let me break it down. Basically, what it means is, in his words, behavior that is constrained by formal and informal rules. And he names four specific aspects of institutionalization. The first is norm-bound succession. Mm -hmm. The second is meritocracy in promotion. The third is bureaucratic professionalization. Mm -hmm. And the fourth is selected spaces for political participation. So the, the short way to understand institutionalization is political stability plus effective governance. And if you look at the citations of Nathan's essay, the the interesting thing is that it actually didn't get that much attention when it was first published, Hmm. but it began to be cited everywhere around the time when she took office, around 2010. Uh. And, And I suspect that the reason for that is China became recognized as a rising power in around the 2010s, and then people began to kind of sit up in their chair and realize well, it doesn't look like it's going to become a democracy. So, so maybe Nathan is correct. But ironically, when she took over, that was actually the beginning of the erosion of uh, institutionalization. So wanna, let, me, let me answer the big question. Has she ended institutionalization? And to many China experts, the answer is obviously yes. Mm-hmm. She has centralized personal power. He has ended term limits. He has ended the norm of collective leadership. And my answer to that is he has indeed deliberately destroyed certain aspects of institutionalization. Mm-hmm in order to centralize power in his own hands and put himself in power for life. But the part that many people have missed is that he has kept other aspects of institutionalization, Mm -hmm. particularly in the bureaucracy, right? because he wants to have a competent bureaucracy. He wants to have a large, effective instrument that would allow him to rule effectively. And so it is this combination of centralizing personal power, 
but at the same time maintaining selective aspects of bureaucratic capacity that I think many people have missed. No, I think that that's a very good cogent summation of of what you argued in this essay. But I, I guess some folks might see kind of a, a contradiction between personalistic rule on the one hand, and you know clearly you describe C's rule as highly personalistic with a full blown you know personality mm-hmm. cult around him, and, and on the other, you know having a competent and capable bureaucracy. Uh, obviously, you, you these two things can exist. You can square them, but you know you you and I thought it was pretty amusing that you you compare C's assault on the autonomy of the bureaucracy to Trump's and maybe to Indira Gandhi's. Um, But you also note a a very important difference. The difference, let me quote you here. You said, the difference in the PRC is that absent checks from civil society and formal contestation, Xi's usurpation of the bureaucracy for his personal ends goes uninhibited. Now, that strikes me as a really significant difference. I mean, so I can easily imagine somebody Mm -hmm. pushing back a little bit and saying, look, you know what's really the difference between deinstitutionalization and total you know personal control over a very capable state bureaucracy i mean a state bureaucracy however capable it is if it's you know doing the bidding of a personalistic ruler doesn't that just kind of mean that isn't a functional institution i mean you could even say that were this leader truly malign it would be even worse that he has a capable bureaucratic apparatus at his disposal, right? So how would you answer that? Those are great questions. Let me unpack a number of things because there's a lot going on here. Let me introduce kind of two concepts to help people think about the bureaucracy, why it matters to see and why he is uh, treating the bureaucracy in the way he does. Mm-hmm. And these two concepts are autonomy and competence, okay? And so in an ideal technocracy, and you can think of that as, for instance, the Singaporean technocracy, mm-hmm. you know, the, the technocracy in Japan after uh, World War II sure. that uh, rapidly uh, industrialized the country. So an ideal technocracy is both autonomous and competent. Competent in the sense that it is staffed by well-qualified, highly educated people who are very good at their jobs and knowledgeable. And autonomy means that as bureaucrats, as government officials who are not political appointees, they are independent from whoever the leader is and from political appointees. They serve the people, the country, and whatever mission is in their agencies, but they're not beholden to people who are elected. Mm -hmm. So to give one example that people might relate to, think of the Center for Disease Control, the CDC in the U.S., right? So, you know, part of its job is to issue these scientific weekly reports on COVID. And for the CDC bureaucrats, that has always been something that's sacrosanct, right? Nobody comes and tells them how to do these reports. And one of the indicators or signs of of the Trump administration actually attempting to erode that autonomy is is that uh, Trump officials try to influence how CDC issues these mortality numbers on on COVID because it was making Trump look bad. So if you wanted to read up on this, you, you can find it in the news. But that's an example where the CDC is still 
a competent, scientifically qualified technocracy, but at that particular moment, its autonomy was being threatened or undermined by the Trump administration. Right, the the administration was trying to politicize the bureaucracy. Once we have an understanding that this type of politicization of the bureaucracy for personal ends can happen in the U.S. administration, then it makes it much easier to understand what she is trying to do. So what she is trying to do is similar. He wants to still maintain a competent technocratic bureaucracy to carry out his signature policies like poverty alleviation. So if you look at things like meritocratic recruitment at the rank and file levels,、mm-hmm. uh, she has not removed that. He is not like Mao. Mao closed down schools and universities for ten years.、Mm-hmm. Mao is an anti-intellectual. He hates the bureaucracy, but she actually wants to have a competent bureaucracy. So he keeps things like meritocratic recruitment, detailed evaluation of officials, and so forth, as long as it's in the middle to low levels where he needs that competence to carry out his mandates. However, similar to the example of Trump that I just gave,、mm-hmm. he then undermined the autonomy of this professional bureaucracy. It was built up over the four decades by、right, making them personally loyal to him, and he has done this in two ways that most people have not noticed. The first thing he has done is that he used the anti-corruption campaign to impose ideological control. Sure. So if you look at the specific mandates in the campaign, it was not just about arresting people who took bribes or embezzled funds. It also said that. The campaign is meant to ensure uniform political thought and loyalty to Xi's、uh, leadership. Right. And furthermore, if you look at the way he changed the evaluation criteria for leading cadres right, in China, because it's not a democracy, every official is evaluated based on the report card、mm-hmm. that's designed、mm-hmm. by Beijing and filters down to the lower levels. And in 2019, he has changed that. So that the very first criteria is the commitment of these party and state officials to having Xi Jinping as the party's core and his philosophy of centralized leadership. So that's a very explicit politicization、uh, of the bureaucracy for his own ends.、Right? And so, so that's what's happening with Xi. It has some parallels to what Trump did, also to what Indira Gandhi did, which was they had a pre-existing technocracy. They wanted to politicize it so that the bureaucracy would do things that served their political interests. Yeah, no, that's really great,、um, and that's a strong argument to suggest that. Yeah, I mean, he has sought to impose personalistic control over the bureaucracy, but let's talk about where the autonomy of the bureaucracy has not. Been completely usurped,、um, and、mm-hmm. you actually muster some data. You you looked at some data that showed, or that that led you to conclude that the state bureaucracy is still somewhat independent. It preserves some of its independence. What was the data that you looked at for that? Yeah, and I think you were referring to my analysis of the central directive. Exactly, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I did an an,、uh, an automated text analysis of all of the central directives issued in China since 1978. Central directives are basically laws, rules, commands, instructions you know, issued by 
the central government in Beijing to various ministries and, and local governments. So, so it, it is the very raw material of the command system. And taking all of the texts of this central directives, about 5,000 of them since 1978, wow. I studied the language and then I classified them into different categories of ambiguity and clarity. Uh, there's a general impression in China studies that Beijing always gives these uh, vague directives, right. vague mandates. And uh, what my research find is that actually there is a variation. Some of these directives are uh, vague and they deliberately provide flexibility and encourage experimentation. But actually, most of the directives are clear. They either clearly endorse a, a particular measure or they clearly forbid a, a certain course of action. And so uh, this whole data set allows us to look at the way Beijing gives commands. One of the things, just using the data set that is consistent with most people's impression, is that Xi Jinping has indeed encroached upon the authority of the state council. Right. It has always been that the state council issues the vast majority, I think it's over 80% of the central directives. And that's because the party controls politics and appointments, mm -hmm. but the state council is the one in charge of governance. What you see under Xi Jinping is that the state council has issued slightly less uh, directives and more of them have been issued jointly, meaning by Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang. So that's a, that is a very clear uh, indication and confirmation of the sense that he has um, usurped the state council's authority. However, having said that, the vast majority, I can't remember the exact percentage, but the vast majority of directives are still being issued by the state council under Li Keqiang. So the changes are happening but it's not as if he overturned the entire bureaucratic system. Yeah, I think I, if I remember correctly, it was in the neighborhood of 80%. So in what areas of political life or administrative life would you say that Xi has most weakened the bureaucracy? Are there specific areas that stood out where, just looking at this pool of central directives, where Xi's personal stamp was there more often? For example, what may, you know might it have been in, you know, just arbitrarily speaking, like technology policy mm. or, or uh, national security policy or anything like that? Mm. So I haven't looked at the jointly issued directives one by one, mm. but some of them I remember, and you immediately made the right guess, technology jumped out as oh. one issue where she wants to assert his authority. Uh, and yes, so he would have the special committee that he chairs to uh, issue these uh, directives with regard to technology policy, instead of having the state council make all of the policies. Would it be a fair kind of guess to say that every area in which there is a leading small group chaired by C, that that's where he's inserted himself most? I think that that would be fair to the extent that he created a special working group around a particular theme. It means that that is the theme that he cares about. Yeah. And technology is a very obvious one. Because technology is really the magic factor 
that could help Xi solve so many problems, from U.S.-China competition to the economy to social control. So that's something that's really at the core of of his leadership. So Yunyan, you're a comparativist at heart. Now we've already gotten a great example of Trump and, of course, Indira Gandhi. Are there other examples, either in the world today or historically, where you think an analogous situation has existed, where there's been a relatively robust state bureaucracy, despite a highly personalistic leader who, you know, is trying to dominate that bureaucracy. Are there other examples that leap? You to said mind? a robust bureaucracy with um with a personalistic leader. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. That survives despite a personalistic leader. Well, I think if we look historically, I'm sure we can find many. Yeah. If you think about any of these great Chinese emperors, are they personalist? <laughs> yeah, I think absolutely, right? Sure. Like they might, they might listen to honest advisors if and when they like it. But but oh yeah, they were totally personal, and they could they could kill anyone. They could kill oh, yeah. lots of oh, people. Yeah. Um, but but did they? But did some of the good emperors have highly competent technocratic bureaucracies? Yes. So so this this is by no means right unprecedented in in Chinese history or even in many other parts of the world. Yeah, I think it's actually kind of a central dynamic in imperial Chinese history. It, it's something that has. Yeah. You know, pretty deep roots, I think. And there's, I, I actually, when I was a, a graduate student way back in, in ancient history, I uh, sort of hit on this idea that it, it is that dynamic itself that's kind of the, an engine in Chinese politics, even in, in Chinese history, that there are different modes of the sort of relationship between the state bureaucracy and the imperial person um, that are, you know, that, that, that in, in the most common mode, kind of a loyal opposition mode, there, this, it's this very tension itself, which has kind of unwritten rules, you know, of how you remonstrate and, and uh, what areas of, of control are ceded to the bureaucracy and which ones are sort of traditionally the realm where the cultural norm is that the imperial person can kind of meddle or, or, or call the shots. But anyway, that, that's, that's all. That's for another show. That's, that's uh, lots of fun. Yeah. So, so, you know, do you believe that institutionalization prior to Xi was actually quite strong, as you know, as Andrew Nathan had had argued, but that she just kind of proved to be even more forceful, or or was institutionalization in the pre Xi Jinping decades actually not as strong as we had supposed it to be? So my argument is that institutionalization definitely happened mm-hmm. prior to Xi. All of the four dimensions that Nathan described, they definitely happened. But what Xi has proven is that institutionalization is fragile and reversible, and that a strong man like him can turn the situation around. And this is in opposition to Nathan's prediction in 2000. And three, where he said that he believed institutionalization is self-reinforcing uh-huh. because all of the political elites had no interest to uh, rock the boat. But what she has shown us is, well, he does, <laughs> and, and and I think and I think that that's also quite unique to the particular circumstances in which he came to power. If if we remember, he came to power in the midst of a political scandal yeah. involving Bo Xilai. And some people have said that that were coups. He disappeared for, I think, two weeks. And, and people wondered what was going on. 
So I think he he came to power in circumstances of extreme and unusual insecurity, where I think that gave him enough impetus to actually rock the boat because he felt that his very existence. Is being threatened. You know, I can't tell you how happy I am to hear you say this because this is a point that I have made again and again.、Uh, I remember not a couple of years ago、uh, here in North Carolina, it was before the pandemic. We had a, a speaker, a, a prominent、uh, journalist, who was working on Xi Jinping, and and she had come and given a talk and talked about how you know Xi kind of defied all the expectations of all these so-called China experts who all thought that he was going to be、mm-hmm. you know a, a liberal reformer. In the mode of his father, and that you know, hey, they were all wrong. See how wrong they were. And I, I kind of raised my hand and suggested, hey,、mm-hmm. well, you know, let's look at the circumstances under which he took office. You know, there were sort of near coup conditions, as you say. There is those unexplained, I guess, like ten day disappearance in September of 2012.、Uh, there's, you know, lots. He, he, they had the knives out for him. That's quite clear now. And you know, if if his Style is going to be more personalistic and paranoid. I think maybe we should look to those circumstances as an explanation. Anyway,、uh, I thought. Yeah,、uh, I completely agree. I, I think that the particular the impact of the circumstances in which he came to power, I think that's been overlooked. Yeah, totally. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. I love this paper is really really fascinating.、Uh, what what I want to know is what are the implications of what you found for. You know, overall resilience. Then, I mean, is your argument basically that the party state is likely to survive, say, a sudden leadership transition?、Uh, that that threats to Xi Jinping's power simply don't translate into threats to the party state's power. Are we suggesting that the bureaucracy will outlive Xi pretty easily? So, my argument is that the sources of resilience and the threats to the CCP have changed. So, if we think about the old recipe that Nathan described, the primary risk to the CCP were in the form of fragmentation, gridlock, and elite corruption、mm. arising from a power-sharing system. But it had also other advantages at the same time. And if you think of the new recipe under Xi, I argue that he has remade the formula for authoritarian resilience. Which combines his personalist rule. It combines selective aspects of bureaucratic competence under that is loyal to him, a tightened political control, and he's also been mobilizing animosity from the U.S. toward China to strengthen his nationalist legitimacy. Yeah. However, even though he has put together this new formula, he has also introduced. New political risk to the CCP, and that is, China's fate is now extremely sensitive to whatever she does. His health, his ideas, his decisions, his whims—it is now entirely hijacked by she, and whatever he likes, doesn't likes things or says. So she's decisions have. An outsized impact on not only China but the whole world, because today China is a global power. So we can see that, for instance, in the Belt and Road Initiative,、mm-hmm. he has also reintroduced the risk of succession battles. For instance, he is definitely taking a third term in October.、Mm-hmm. But if for whatever reason he no longer is able to serve. 
And also, he's a mortal. At some point, he's not gonna live forever. That there is no more Plan B in the CCP. Right. About who's going to succeed him if she's no longer around. That's spot on. It highlights the the brittleness that he's introduced through personalism. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, whether enough of the kind of institutional autonomy of the the state bureaucracy is in place that it would, you know, survive without too much turmoil a transition. But that, that's something we, we really can't, mm. can only guess at. So I want to ask you about this. So we often hear comparisons uh, between Xi Jinping and Mao Zedong. You could argue, sure, that both are strong leaders with personality culture around them. But in your paper, you point out a fundamental and really important difference between them. And you, you, you pointed to this a little before, you know, that Mao was an anti-intellectual. She wants to build the state bureaucracy. But can you, can you elaborate on this a little bit more? I think this is still a mistake I, I see out there in public discourse. This idea of, I mean, I think it, it's, it's, it, gets, it gets Mao wrong fundamentally and it gets Xi wrong. Yeah, totally. I think that a broader point to be made is that we often search for analogies and similarities in trying to understand a particular situation like Xi. But what is really necessary is to see that similarities and differences can exist at the same time. So we don't want to make analogies that say, oh, you know, she is just like Mao, and then that becomes very misleading. There are certainly aspects of Xi that resemble Mao, like his attempts to revive a personality cult, for instance. But there are other aspects of him that is totally unlike Mao, and so we need to keep both the similarities and the differences in mind. And so in my view, she is not like Mao, because Mao is an institution destroyer. Right. And I think a way to understand that is we can think about Trump on January 6th, that kind of behavior, right? And there are disturbing parallels between January 6th, where President Trump basically encouraged and incited right, his mob to attack the Capitol Hill. Bombard the headquarters. <laughs> Bombard the headquarters, that's right, versus Mao doing basically the same thing except on the scale of tens of millions of red gods and for 10 years. And, and the basic attitude of being an institution destroyer is they don't seem to care if they destroy the country, right? They don't care. Their priority is to keep themselves in power. I think she is different. She has certain elements that are like Mao. He wants to revive a personality cult, he's ideological, he's anti-foreign. But in terms of the way he treats institution, he only wants to diminish or abandon certain rules, like term limits. But he wants to maintain a competent bureaucracy, that's for sure. Yeah. And he also does not want to destroy China because he is so intent on, on competing with the U.S. So the, the state bureaucracy had been effectively destroyed during the decade of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, and I think it's one of the things that's really remarkable about it is how quickly it sprang back and how competent it did become. So let's talk about how in the decades after Mao's death, the bureaucracy in China did become institutionalized to the extent that it did. Maybe we could start with the composition of the bureaucracy in the years before and after reform and opening began. Was this just sort of the pendulum swinging back away from the red and toward the expert as it had done previously, like in the early 60s? 
Right. Because I, I see similarities, like technocracy comes back, right? Right. I mean, that is uh, that is part of the, I would say, almost like the political DNA of the CCP, where they constantly oscillate between do we want the Reds, you know, the officials who are um, ideologically very loyal to whoever is in power and to communist ideology, or do we want the people who have the expertise, right? So this oscillation has been constantly going on. And under Mao, obviously, what he wanted was loyalty to him, right? And uh, the experts, the intellectuals, uh, the reformers, even uh, people like Deng Xiaoping uh, were purged under his leadership. Um, one other thing I think worth pointing out is that I often hear this trope that, oh, you know, China had 5,000 years of, you know, Confucian rule. And, and I think people are always under the impression that at any point in time, you know, China had this like super qualified Mandarin system and technocracy. And therefore, uh, some people would would tell me, oh, you know, it's no surprise that China's economy grew because they always had this uh, Confucian bureaucracy in place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think it's worth reminding people, and here um, I, I quote a number from Mike Oxenberg, because numbers in those days obviously were very scarce. And in that particular study, he estimates that in around mid-1960s, when the Cultural Revolution was happening, the average number of former years of schooling among local leaders was only 4.8 years. Wow. That's like hardly educated, right? Hardly, hardly educated. Yeah, barely less, literate. Less than yeah. primary school education, right? And it's not surprising because China had already suffered more than a century of extreme poverty, civil war, like famines. And then you have Mao who comes along and he hates intellectuals. He closed down schools and universities for 10 years. So at the most basic level, we have to keep in mind that actually uh, when Deng Xiaoping took over, he took over, he, he took over a ruin, <laughs> a ruined bureaucracy, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. you can. There were suddenly the historical legacies that he could draw on and, and the CCP very quickly build on that. But the starting point was, was pretty dire. And so in the decades since then, what the CCP has really committed itself to is to build up bureaucratic capacity from a very low starting point. And one of the first things that Deng did, of course, was to change the criteria for recruitment. And he wanted to recruit more educated and, and young people. Right. And so one number, for instance, is that from 2006 to 2017, the share of civil servants with a bachelor's degree or above grew from 43% to 72%. So it must be higher now. It means that before 2006, which is quite recent, you actually had more than 50% of civil servants without a bachelor's degree. Right. If you go higher up, though, I mean, I remember that Lynn White and, and Lee Chung had done this study on, on the composition of the bureaucracy. And in the early 1990s, if I remember correctly, if you looked at, um, at provincial level leaders, either, you know, uh, party secretaries or governors, if you looked at mayors or municipal party secretaries of cities of over a million you had something like 75% that had not just bachelor's degrees, but post-secondary degrees in, you know, four-year degrees in the natural sciences or in engineering. So 
it was already sort of super heavily, heavily. Yes, absolutely. At at the higher levels, the level of meritocracy in terms of education and and overall quality was rapidly escalated.、Um, yeah, it took、yeah. a longer time at the grassroots level. I remember some, I would say, more than ten years ago. If I were to go to some remote place in China, the 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 quality of the officialdom was was still definitely lagging behind. <laughs> But overall, I've met those、uh, the, guys. Yeah, over, <laughs> you've met those guys, so you know what I'm talking about. Yes,、yeah. that's right.、Um, but overall, like over the four decades, it, it, there was a steady trend in which the bureaucracy in China went from a starting point of complete ruin to to gradually becoming more and more professionalized. I want to get back to this idea about you know、uh, the sort of Confucian patterns、uh, and whether they reemerged. And、uh, but I want to ask a couple of things first. It strikes me, you know, I was just asking about you know the oscillation between red and expert historically, and I, I, it seems like she kind of wants both, right? He wants red and expert.、Um, your piece suggests a couple of dyads, or it seems like she, you know. Also wants to have it both ways. There's, on the one hand,、mm. bottom-up adaptation versus top-down mobilization,、yeah. and also, you know, and certainly related, there's this pragmatism versus more ideologically driven approaches to, to governance. And with both of these, your paper argues that you know, under C, it, it isn't. He's not just favoring one over the other, and there's often kind of opportunistic back and forth between these two priorities.、Uh, can you can you unpack this a bit? Because I thought that was a really、uh, compelling. Part of your argument, the two defining attributes of the Chinese bureaucracy being one that is under、uh, the rule of the Chinese Communist Party. The first is this idea of mobilization, which is quite alien in, I think, democracies, except in selected contexts. Like you can think of,、um, say, an election is coming up, right, and and you mobilize your voters. So so we we might be able to. Think of a similar analogy in that context, like MAGA rallies. <laughs> <laughs> you could maybe you you might think of that. Yeah, yeah. Like the the you need to have a massive showing, right, of great enthusiasm toward one goal, which is to win the election. So analogously, the Chinese bureaucracy. Is highly capable of this thing called mobilization, which means that say when she says my signature policy is poverty eradication, and these are the targets we're going to achieve, I'm going to mobilize the entire bureaucracy of more than forty million bureaucrats, and they're going to, you know, work themselves to death to to achieve my goals.、Uh, Literally. And, and, They they do that literally. So I cited this、yeah. number from the Global Times where they said you know eighteen hundred cadres died implementing poverty alleviation, and and they and they just said it like a fact, you know, w- without any surprise or emotion. Because can you imagine in the U.S. if eighteen hundred public employees die from implementing a policy, <laughs> right? There will be at least some. Uproar, right? But no, it was just a fact, you know. It, like the,、uh, right. the mobilization was so was so extreme that officials actually died in the process, and there were reports that many of them lost their voice, couldn't sleep at night,、um, and so that's mobilization. And of course, she loves that because、yeah. that to him is what he calls the institutional advantage of the CCP that democracies do not have. Democracies are divided. They're dysfunctional. They can't get their act together. But in his view, the advantage of what he has 
is that he has this gigantic apparatus, and when he commands it to do something, right, every one of them would participate and give all the enthusiasm and even die for it. So that's mobilization. Yeah. And and then there's this other aspect of the bureaucracy, which is bottom up, that he also selectively wants to keep, and that's the adaptive quality of the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the Chinese bureaucracy throughout the Reform Era is famously known to be adaptive and experimental. It is decentralized. The local governments come up with various initiatives on their own. They would flexibly implement policy, and that flexibility and adaptability. Has been one of the key causes, one of the key reasons for China's economic dynamism and its resilience. And so she knows that that's a good thing as well. And so he wants to keep that,、uh, but he only invokes it under certain conditions. He only invokes that adaptive quality and encourages experimentation when he doesn't know what to do, when he himself. Realizes, I don't know what to do about this. He'll say, "Why don't you guys figure it out? You guys get to experiment." And so, a good example of this is his speech in about common prosperity. I was going to ask you whether that's a yeah. That was going to use that as a possible example. Yeah, I think that's a great speech. That's a great speech that I, I encourage people to read the original words. Um, and it may seem like propaganda and bureaucratic, but it's actually really fascinating. The way he talks about, you know, his role and his implicit acceptance of responsibility, and then the basic point of that speech was he gave that speech in,、uh, I believe it was August. Yeah, and so it was already after eight months where this common prosperity has、uh, pretty much destroyed, right? The big tech companies and private companies. It has scared away investors. Clearly, was a backlash. And by August, you know, he basically gives a reflection speech to central bureaucrats,、uh, where he said,、mm, you know, we we wanted to have this thing called common prosperity, and we should. But here's the problem. The problem is that I want it both ways. You know, I want China to have capitalism and be prosperous, and everyone to have entrepreneurial incentives. But at the same time, I want it to control the dark sides of capitalism. I want it to reduce inequality, and we haven't figured out how to have it both ways. And so his final words for the bureaucrats is: So therefore, why don't you guys figure it out? And <laughs> and and he appointed Zhejiang as his imperial pilot to go figure it out. Right, that's that's、um, typical. I mean, to to have one region designated as sort of the test testing ground, really fascinating. So I want to get back to this whole sort of historical question. I mean, so some listeners might remember that way back when I was in graduate school, I had actually settled on a dissertation topic. Uh, about the rise of technocrats in post Mao China, I didn't get all that far into my research, but is that right? Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. No, no, it's true. Yeah,、um, and you know, a year, a couple of years later, after I'd come back to China,、uh, I had a column for Time Magazine, and I, I distilled my dissertation into like a nine hundred word essay that was kind of jokingly titled "The Revenge of the Nerds,"、uh, <laughs> how you know China had become sort of this technocratic. Wonderland, <laughs> but、um, yeah, so that was it. I never went back and I, I never finished it. But、um, from everything that I had read, by the point that I it had set it aside, one thing that really struck me was that you know, as China was becoming increasingly technocratic, as as scientists and especially engineers began to make up 
you know, a higher and higher percentage of officialdom, there was kind of acceptance of this as perfectly natural. It went almost unremarked upon. Uh, at least it, it didn't meet with much by way of objection that I could find at all. Mm-hmm. What do you think accounts for this? I mean, I had this idea that really what we were seeing was kind of old wine filling new bottles, that there's this kind of mm-hmm. historical reflex whereby you got knowledge elites. Always, it's always going to be knowledge elites. And they have to kind of have a demonstrable mastery of what's the accepted truth paradigm of the day, right? The reigning truth uh-huh. paradigm. Uh, it, the, the, these people should be in positions of power naturally, like – who should staff the bureaucracy in Imperial China? That's you know you had to show that you could write a mm-hmm, eight legged mm-hmm. essay and you had the Confucian canon completely memorized. And by the eighties, it started to mean you could solve differential equations and you understood fluid dynamics. Right? <laughs> at, at at the considerable risk of of essentialism here, I I, I might offer after <laughs> I had a couple of drinks in me, maybe I would I would say something like you know hey this is the country that practically invented bureaucracy, right, and and certainly invented the civil service examination, and mm-hmm. you know, again, like like you said, it should be we we shouldn't assume that it was always there, that there was always this you know highly competent Confucian Mandarin it that that ran everything well, but you know, but mm-hmm. but there is this kind of bureaucratic resilience that's definitely built into. That is a Chinese characteristic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what, what, do you think there's anything to that, or was I just like yeah. barking up the wrong tree? I, I I totally think so. I mean, you you I I think what you you basically done is 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 restate what I've what I've tried to argue, except you restated it better. No, which no, no. is one of the key sources of the CCP's resilience is bureaucratic resilience, right? It's 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 about the bureaucracy, and so if you remember. Um, the talk I gave at Camden, and and before I gave the talk, I told everyone, "Oh, my talk today is about bureaucracy," and people were like, "Oh, that's going to be oh, so it was boring. great, yeah." That's you know, actually I- on YouTube. <laughs> you can watch it on YouTube along with my my not not as good talk, but yeah, we both spoke together at that conference. That was a really good conference. By the way. Yeah, yeah, but but the point is that I I I think. Usually when people talk about autocracies, they want to talk about the exciting things, right? Like the leadership. The factional struggle, but the bureaucracy is actually so central to the CCP and to China because it is the existence of an effective bureaucracy that determines if the CCP can rule effectively. And if it rules effectively, then it has resilience. And I think the great challenge facing the technocracy in China today is that they realize that, oh my God, now we are serving a personalist leader, and many of his policies are deeply flawed and contradictory. Yeah. And, and so we have to do a job, and very often we have to clean up the messes he has made. But it doesn't mean that they uh, have any intention to depose him. They may actually genuinely be loyal to the party and, and, and possibly even to him. But the fact that she has this effective bureaucracy in place is is the one thing that allows him to keep hobbling along no matter how terrible some of his policies have been. So, Yurian, what do you make of of the fact that technocrats, it looks like it anyway, are are going to, you know, surge in the upcoming party congress? I don't know whether you saw uh, Macro Polo, they have this report from the other day. It, it says, and I'm going to quote from this just one sentence here, the proportion of technocrat provincial leaders 
party secretaries and governors has more than doubled since 2017. 2017, interestingly, is the year that you cited uh, as the end point um, from 35% 11 back then to 23 that's 74%. Technocrats have also been promoted over yeah. the last year to head ministries, which is obviously the case. There are people talking now about a Beihang clique. There are a lot of people who, you know... Are, Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you make mm-hmm. of this? What, what do you think this, this this trend bodes? I think that what we can expect to see going forward is the distribution of power between officials who are loyal to Xi, so his, his faction, people he can trust, but who are not necessarily as competent, qualified, open-minded or knowledgeable, you, you might call it that. And versus the other, which are the technocrats, the people who really have the competence to get things done. And if we try to imagine what it's like in Xi's head, he needs both of them. He will always need his own loyalists, right? people he can trust. And I believe actually um, Victor Shi has a new book coming out where he argues that yeah. uh, Xi deliberately uh, picks some incompetent people and, and puts them in power because that gives him more... Uh, because those people basically have no one to turn to other than Xi. They'll, <laughs> right. be doubly, um, they'll be doubly loyal because of their incompetence. So if I summarize Victor incorrectly, you know, um, I, I apologize, and Victor will be better placed to uh, state well, his Well, we'll invite him on the show to talk about it, but uh, for sure. That's yeah. right, that's right. But, but for sure, Xi wants to have this group in place, but he can never, never do without the competent technocrats. Uh, and I think you can put people like Li Keqiang in, 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 in that group, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. What we have been seeing in China in the past 10 years is a p- pattern of policy oscillation. Uh, she would, you know, announce we have this common prosperity and then uh, it scares away investors. And then you see what the state council does is try to control damage, right? So you see this extreme implementation of a particular ideological agenda followed by damage control. And it goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So um, I believe that after she takes his third term, this policy oscillation will be here to stay. It will be an enduring feature, feature of yeah. his leadership uh, because his policies, many of his policies, not all of them are bad, but a lot of them have, have clearly been flawed. And because of the negative consequences created, the technocrats then have to control damage or clean up the mess. Fantastic. So this podcast is now more than 12 years old, and across all this time, one of the things that I've, I've explored, it's kind of been a leitmotif for the whole thing, is just the authoritarian turn that China clearly took. And you know, I've asked a lot of guests over the mm. years, you know, their thoughts on when it began and for, for a while. Uh, but I'm curious with you, because you, you are somebody who taught in China before the turn was quite so noticeable. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's why I'm, I'm curious. I, I want to hear what it was like. You, dive into something, you, you talked about this a little bit. You just flicked at it in your essay in, in Journal of Democracy. But I'm, I'm, yeah. I want to hear uh, what, what was the sort of the extent of, of let's, I mean, I hesitate to call it, but um, liberalization or freedom that you experienced. What sorts of topics were you able to explore with students you know, sure. that are no longer things that you could even think about sure. doing? Yeah. And I think it's best to answer these questions with real-life anecdotes. Yeah, for sure. Right? Because often we talk about it in such abstract terms that people can relate to them. Right? And so um, that's why I, I told the story. Um, okay, th- let, me, let me first say that 
that the CCP has always been a one-party autocracy without、um, individual political freedoms.、Right. Okay, so let's let's make、yeah. that very clear. That I, I, that's 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 just a fact. And even in its most、um, reform-minded and partially liberal period. Um, the government and the police can crack down on anyone, anytime, and that's just another fact. However, within the parameters of what I have just described, there was actually a lot of changes over time, and even an increased amount of partial liberalization has real practical effects. On people's lives in China, for sure. Right. So the example that I gave was that prior to Xi, China was then you can travel freely around、uh, the country. There wasn't anti-foreign、uh, sentiment, and、um, it was in that sense fairly.、Um, Maybe liberal might be the wrong word because we use liberal in the American sense, but basically it was liberal to the extent that no one cared. You know, it was liberal because of neglect, and not because liberal because of values, right? My favorite kind. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember that that I could just go to、uh, universities and and they they、uh, at the time I was a graduate student and they and and you get to teach guest lectures and and I would submit my syllabus. It had the words democracy and rule of law in it. Nobody cared. Just nobody cared. And so I would just go and teach these、uh, themes, and、um, nobody ever told me what to say, what I can't say. And initially, when I shared that anecdote, some people's responses was, "Oh, you know, who approved it?" And I had to explain multiple times that nobody cared. Right? That was the context, and 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 that that kind of context of neglect then provided a lot of space for. Um, people to actually be able to have partial freedom of speech, and I stress again that that's partial. But oh, I could talk about democracy. I could talk about the rule of law.、Uh, I could talk about various things. Another example that I gave, which I think it's brilliant, is I got to know this、um, Chinese intellectual, and he's also a veteran、uh, mm-hmm. party member. Uh, during my time in China, that was before Xi, and I wrote about this in the Journal of Democracy article. And he, he being a public intellectual, would write many of these subversive essays about the party and the party's、uh, interpretation of various things. And so the censorship authorities came along, and they were not happy with what he's writing. And so they ordered his、uh, institution, who employed him, to do something to punish him. And the institution responded by doing the exact opposite, which was to broadcast a video praising this particular person.、Mm. And so this was like a an example where there was so much, there was actually a lot of subversion going on the ground.、Right? Even even in that, even even though at the time and until now, China is an autocracy.、Um, these varying degrees. Of political liberalization was enough for people to explore things like investigative journalistic reports, to、uh, debate one another, and to sometimes behave subversively. But all of that today is just ignored, brushed aside, because for politicians as well as the people advocating for. 
decoupling from China, they just want to make a simplistic argument, right. which is we thought China is going to be a democracy, become a democracy like the United States, and that didn't happen, right? And so from their perspective, they don't care about what actually happened on the ground. They don't care about the lived experiences and the practical limited spaces of uh, political freedoms that people actually experience. They don't care about all of that. What they want to sell is this simplistic narrative that we were wrong to engage China, so now it's time for us to close the doors on them. Yeah, and in, in your essay, you make this argument that these these attitudes and, and these policies by the U.S., uh, this rhetorical style, has actually buttressed Xi's hold on power in China, has made it more illiberal. Um, and you, you talk about why you believe that engagement, first of all, engagement hadn't failed well, at the time that we decided to jettison the idea, and, and why maybe treating China like an enemy will actually work at cross-purposes with advancing democracy in China. By the way, you make this argument in a, a journal that is published basically by the National Endowment for Democracy, which I thought was really great. Right. One of the problems with U.S.-China discourse today is that both China and the U.S. are completely self-centered, meaning they, they see the situation only from their own perspectives. That's right. So from the U.S. point of view, we would always hear China is a threat. Right? China is a threat in X and Y ways and so forth. And if you go to China, you hear exact same thing. China thinks the U.S. is a threat. Right? It is absolutely convinced that the U.S. Uh, wants to contain China's rise. But the both sides, I think, have never sat down to consider what are the effects of their perceptions and what they say on the other side. And so what I wanted to highlight in this essay is that all of this rhetoric, this threat rhetoric and hawkish anti-China rhetoric, it's mostly produced to satisfy a domestic audience. But when it reaches China, it has the opposite effect of basically inflaming nationalist sentiments. Right, so the, the the practical effect of that kind of rhetoric and attitude is to give plenty of fuel for autocrats and propagandists in China to say, "Look, the United States hates us. Uh, they see us as an enemy. So now that we have a foreign enemy, we must." stay united under one leader, and uh, nobody should uh, have any disagreements, right? We, we should put all of our attention on countering this one country that threatens us. And everything you just said could be switched around with just the names of the countries. And instead of talking about exactly. one leader, you could talk about bipartisan consensus. Uh, and you could be talking about exactly. the exact effect that Chinese uh, sort of strident nationalist rhetoric has on America, where it, it fans the flames of American nationalism and threat perception of China. So yeah, it's it's just yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah in, in fact, Kaiser, I would say it's not the U.S. or China who is winning in this geopolitical contest. The only people who are winning 
are the the are the radicals, yeah. the extremists, and and the autocrats on both sides. They are winning because the discourse plane is uneven, right? It's so easy to be nationalist. Like like you don't even have to make an effort. You just need to scream and um, say extreme things and get people roused. Whereas the people on the other side, they have to work really hard, right, to get anyone to listen to a balanced argument. And so the only people winning are really the nationalists on both sides. Well, you are working hard, and I'm really, really just glad to to give you an opportunity to sense make and to try to right size things and to to put these perspectives forward. And and you too. It really takes a community. Uh, I mean. One person will be like drowned out in in one nanosecond. Um, it, it really takes a community to to sustain, I think, um, a, a balanced discourse at a time when it's so easy and so rewarding to be nationalist. Solidarity for the sensible sister. I mean, that's <laughs> absolutely, yeah, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, we need a hashtag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a pleasure it is, as always, to talk to you. Uh, the paper. To remind everybody, is in the Journal of Democracy, and the title is "How Resilient Is the CCP?" We will have a link to a free downloadable version of it. This is now the the other one is on is behind a paywall, but um, Yuan Yuan has graciously provided me with a a, a free link. Uh, so f- th- thanks once again. Let's move on now with recommendations. But first, a very quick reminder that the Seneca Podcast is powered by the China Project, and if you like the work that we're doing with Seneca and with all the other shows in the network. Well, the way to support that work is by becoming an Access subscriber. That gets you all the good stuff behind our formidable paywall. And, of course, the daily Access newsletter, which is by itself absolutely worth the price of admission. So help us keep the lights on so I can continue to interview people like Yuan Yuan and, uh, you know, try to do the hard work. So on to recommendations. Yuan Yuan, what do you have for us? I... Uh, would recommend a drama series and a book today. Oh, great, 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 great. So for the drama series, I would, re- it, I would recommend the Chinese series. It's called Zouxiangonghe. Yeah, it's great. I love that. Which means um, toward, toward republicanism, with, uh, toward a republican state. I love that. That's, that's, that's quite old, but I love that. Have you watched yeah, that? Yeah, I've watched it. It's fantastic. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, it yeah. is, right? It is a hidden gem. I tell you, if, if I wish they had English subtitles because it is a hidden gem and, and it was blocked in China by the Chinese authorities. I'm not sure which exactly which part offended them, probably the part about... Or was it Sun Yat-sen's speech about China's aspirations to be a democracy? Yeah, that might have been it too. I mean, but that was actually, I think that that was quite literal. It was actually from an uh, an actual speech he gave. So that stuff can be found published Ah. in in China. So I don't know. It's it's really good though. That's right. That's right. It's really good. It is very good. It is high quality storytelling, uh, vivid characters. And the reason I've been watching it is because I'm trying to find a historical analogy of highly competent and patriotic technocrats trying to do their best under a personalist leader who keeps making mistakes. <laughs> and I thought Li Hongzhang fits that sure, bill. Sure, sure. Li Hongzhang uh, is, is, is this uh, Chinese official during the late Qing dynasty who was greatly admired even by his foreign enemies for his competence and his charm. 
But to the end, he was loyal to the Empress Dowager Cixi and to the Qing Dynasty. And so, in the end, he is a very tragic character, someone who is so intelligent and so patriotic. But all of China thought he was a traitor because. Uh, he had to sign、uh, the treaty that basically gave away China's territories、uh, to foreigners. So, so that's why I'm watching、uh, that history and, and trying to learn from it. So that's one. Great. And then the second recommendation is it's also an old book. Like I I love old drama series and old books. It's published in 1994. It's called Lenin's Tomb: The Last Days of the Soviet Empire. Remnick,、and、yeah. It's it's by Remnick, and and oh my god, he is such a magnificent. Writer, like I wonder if he just sits down in front of the computer and like types out these perfect sentences, like for three hundred pages. The book is just so riveting, and then he gives this really vivid portrayal of 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 what it's like on on the eve of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I thought it was very timely because、uh, recently Gorbachev、uh, passed away, and and we are thinking about. Will the CCP be resilient, or will it collapse? I think this book offers so many lessons, and one of the key lines from this book is that the reason the Soviet Union collapsed was that it allowed a small crack. It allowed a small crack in political discourse. It allowed a small crack、uh, in in allowing people to think about history, and that crack then became, you know, much larger fractures, and eventually the Soviet Union collapsed. Yeah. So Remnick is is obviously the editor in chief of the New Yorker for a good reason. He is a beautiful writer, and、uh, mm-hmm. that's that's a fantastic book. I haven't、yeah. read it in a long time. I, I think I'm going to revisit it though. You're right. It's extru- extremely timely. Uh, I've been reading、um, this this Putin biography, and so it's it's also you know covers a lot of that same period as well. So that that's、uh, by Philip Short, but I've recommended that before. But my mine is going to be a, a different kind of recommendation entirely. It's just three novels, a kind of trilogy from Guy Gabriel K、uh, that I recently read. It's the books are Children of Earth and Sky, and its prequel、uh, Brightness Long Ago. And then there's all the seas of the world, which is the newest one, which is also kind of a, a, a well, it's 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 in between the two in, in time. These books kept me company. The first two kept me company over a very long and lonely drive as I made my way back from Madison, Wisconsin, after dropping my daughter off at college, and I'm missing her very badly. But、uh, these, I, I just finished all the seas of the world last night. These are set in a kind of Mediterranean world in the Renaissance,、uh, in the decades straddling the fall of Constantinople. It's it's a world that is basically our world, but with the, the places names changed and the major religions tweaked a bit.、Um, there's an additional moon up in the sky, but this is a world that Guy Gabriel K has written about、uh, a number of times. It works really well, and and the guy his prose is also gorgeous. And I also wonder whether he sits down and writes. And so it's not just great sentences, but there's profound ideas in it. There's all sorts of really interesting reflections just about the operations of history, about you know contingency, about、uh, about you know the human condition. That are they're really this just quite quite moving and profound. His characters are super memorable. I mean, his prose is just getting better. His storytelling has always been really compelling, but it's it's he's just going from strength to strength. So it's easy to just get completely immersed in this world that he's created, and 
I, I love him. Check out these his all of his his stuff that I've read is just fantastic. He's even done a couple I've talked about on the show that are set in kind of a mythologized China. Uh, one called All Under Heaven, which is uh, really set during the Anlushan Rebellion uh, between the the Battle of Talas in, in 751 through the Anlushan Rebellion. And you know there's characters that are obviously like you know the poet Li Bai and. Uh, it's great. It's quite good. He, he he gets it. He gets it pretty well. You know, Alushan and Yang Guozhong and uh, Yang Guifei all show up in it. And then there's another one that he did set in the Song Dynasty, where he kind of conflates the Yuefei story uh, with like Shui Hu Zhuai, and it, it works somehow. And it's really great. It's set in kind of northern Song during the Jurchen invasion of North China, so it's fantastic. Um, if you like. History, historical fiction, or fantasy—you're going to really love his novels. So, Yuan Yuan, thank you once again. What a delight to talk to you, as always. Thank you. It's always fascinating to talk to you. I, it's, it's a real pleasure to come on your program. Well, we will come on again soon, I hope, because I'm really hoping that you'll be able to join us for uh, a kind of post-game analysis of of the the uh, 20th Party Congress, which is now set to begin on mm. October 16th. So, we look forward to that. Thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at thechinaproj. Just leave the ECT off. The China Podge, and be sure to check out all the shows in the Cinema Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.